Hi, I'm Cullen Taylor. Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, and I told him the dream, saying, I saw a tree, and its height was great. The tree grew, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions a holy one come down from heaven. He proclaimed, Chop down the tree, let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But, the le but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This is the interpretation, O king. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Hey there. Uh, as we look at this passage, Daniel chapter 4, 
there's something that if you had read the whole chapter yourself, you would find that there's a refrain, like a chorus in a song. We just sang the song, God of Wonders, and that, that chorus comes back again and again. The chorus, the refrain of Daniel 4, is seen four times explicitly, but actually it comes across as echoes, almost like second choruses, and it's this, that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. What happens in Daniel 4, what God is doing, saying to Daniel, saying to Nebuchadnezzar, saying to us, is that you and I, that we, that Nebuchadnezzar may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, all of this comes because of a dream, another dream, actually another nightmare that Nebuchadnezzar has. In this dream, he dreams of a gigantic tree, a tree so large that it reaches to the heavens. And in it, all the creatures of the earth find food and shade and shelter. The birds in it, the animals under it. It is the most magnificent thing. But then an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God, comes and says, cut it down, destroy it, rip it apart, leave it down to just a stump, throw away all of the fruit, scatter all of the animals, and let it just be a stump of gra- in the grass wet with dew. And Nebuchadnezzar is horrified by this dream. He doesn't know what it means. So, of course, he calls all of the magicians in, and eventually he calls in Daniel. Daniel, because Daniel has insight. He's seen this. He's seen this because God has spoken through Daniel. Daniel hears the dream and then is terrified himself. In fact, he has, he's, he doesn't want to tell Nebuchadnezzar. And it demonstrates an element of compassion because he, he prays. He says, I hope that the interpretation is not for you, but for your enemies. And yet, it is for you. You are the tree, the tree that was mighty and powerful and overseeing everything, in, in charge of everything. Everyone could see it. Everyone depended on it. Fruitful and beautiful and massive. And you are going to be cut down. Now, at this point, we get actually in the middle of the whole narrative, what is the crisis point? It's, you know, in a, in a movie narrative, it would be the inflection point is Is the leader going to respond? Is the protagonist going to respond the way they should? Will the bad guys win? We're not sure. And it comes in a couple of verses, right sandwiched in the middle. It's in verse 27 that I'm going to read, where after declaring this message, Daniel says to the king, here's what you need to do, possibly. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Basically, Daniel's saying, God is going to give you an opportunity to repent, to hear this message and say, no, I don't want to do it. What do I need to do? What do I need to know from God? How do I need to live? And he says, repent of your sins, break off of them, and instead practice righteousness, which actually means justice. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, to the oppressed, to the weak. Will he do this? Well, the crisis point turns in the wrong direction just a couple verses later. Because we read in verse 30 that 12 months later, 
just one year after this horrible dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar is standing on the rooftop of his palace, the tallest palace in Babylon, the great city. And Nebuchadnezzar looks around and says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Will he repent or will he stand in his pride? Well, the answer comes right there. He forgets the message and glories in his own power, greatness, and majesty. And I want to look for a little bit about how what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, and even as we reflect on it ourselves, is really the call of pride or humility. It's how will we respond to the life that we live, that we're called into, and how will we live in relation to God? Out of pride or out of humility? And you know, the question is that most of us don't want to be proud people. And as Christians, we know humility is a good thing. But I think there's some ways to think about these to try to understand if maybe we fall into pride instead of humility. And one of the ways that we can see pride versus humility is whether we are people filled with anxiety or filled with peace. Anxiety is, is filled with self-concern, which is essentially pride, whereas humility has a self-forgetfulness to it. Humility is filled with peace because you're not always thinking about yourself. You know, a lot of our anxiety and our worry is because we are driven people. And when you find, uh, you know, that drivenness inside of us, it, you can become neurotic, constantly trying to achieve because you constantly need to prove yourself. Whether it's as a kid on the playing field or in school or as an adult with your career, with your own kids' careers, with just managing your life. You want to achieve and prove and achieve and approve. And then we constantly see others as perceived threats. There's that neurosis that a king has of, even though Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful person or a, a king and emperor can be the most powerful person, they're constantly afraid that somebody's going to take it from them. That's what drives the best of athletes. Even when they've accomplished everything, they keep going because they constantly feel like they need to prove themselves and everyone else is a threat to them being on that top stand. Some of us are driven and anxious. Others of us deal with self-loathing. And I know some out there do. You feel awful about yourself because your life isn't where you want it to be. But even in the midst of that, what we're doing is the same thing that somebody that's driven is doing. Both the self-loathing and the super accomplished are trying to measure up. And when you feel awful about yourself, it's because you're not measuring up to some set of standards. The world's, your parents, your own. And in the midst of that, we have anxiety. I'm not measuring up or I am measuring up, but I have to keep going. It's pride that is constantly trying to prove itself or feels awful because it's failing to prove itself. It's our ego that does that, right? We see that anxiety come out relationally for some of us, that we're constantly looking for our place. And you know, when you move into a community, what you find, whether it's um, a church or a club or the local school, we're trying to constantly feel like, are these my people? Do these people make me feel better about myself? Do they make me look good? Do I wanna hang out with them or not? 
We always want to be in the inner circle. Do we have our own inner circle? And we're worried about how we come across towards others. Worried about whether we looked cool, sounded smart, feel accomplished in front of others, and anxious about whether we're going to be snubbed or left out, forgotten. That anxiety, that constant concern for ourselves is because we're always comparing. We feel good about ourselves if we feel like we are smarter or better looking or our marriage is doing well or our money is more well taken care of than other people. But it's always in relation to others. We're always comparing. Whether it's our accomplishments or our relationships, we're always comparing. And it's why most of us prefer to help people rather than be helped. Because our pride says, I want to be the one that others need. I don't want to be dependent on anyone. Pride is always thinking about itself. And so it's always anxious and has no peace. This is the place that Nebuchadnezzar lived in, that place of anxiety, thinking about himself, thinking about if what he'd accomplished had declared who he was, not being at peace. How do we know if we have pride versus humility? It can be that anxiety versus peace, that self-concern versus self-forgetfulness. It's also, what do we do with our record? What do you do with your record? And when I say your record, I mean like your accomplishments, your successes, the things you've built in life, all that you've done, or your moral record, your religiousness. Are you regarded as a kind person? What do you do with all of that? You know, King Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. And by the time he finished his reign towards the end of it, his, his kingdom extended to the ends of the known earth. He had absolute dominion and rule over his entire realm. And on, he was on top of all sorts of other kings. He had conquered other kingdoms and either killed or enslaved their kings. Basically, he was the king of other kings. And he built a city, a famous city of Babylon, and he built it up even greater than all of his predecessors. The, the city that he built under, under his rule had some of the most amazing engineering and architectural accomplishments. He had these series of walls that were there to protect the city. In the inner city, it had a double ring of walls. Each one was 10 feet and 20 feet thick. And then he built another set of walls outside of that that were each 20 feet thick. They were thick enough that a chariot could drive across on top. And according to um, archaeological studies and other uh, testaments, that most outer wall was at least 40 feet high, so over 20 feet thick, over 40 feet high. It was massive and imposing. It had this amazing gate, this famous gate that was the main gate, the Ishtar Gate, that was, again, 40 feet tall and opened incredibly wide, 100 feet across It was how big it was. And then there was this passageway, and all of it was ornately decorated with relief art. It was just this massive, beautiful, imposing, it was military power at its greatest. It was architect and beauty and art at its greatest. All of it just standing there, and it was all his, and he had built it all. He built temples. He had towers and ziggurats that were taller than any 
um, in the known world, hundreds and hundreds, a uh, couple hundred feet high. He had 20 some different temples that he built and he built up three palaces in the city, including the famous palace that he was probably standing on when he made that declaration, look at all I built, that was built with the Hanging Gardens, the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was basically this giant palace that had a series of, of terraces, and on each of the terraces was gardens and trees and plantings. It was this beautiful tower of plantings, which involved a complex system of irrigation to get the water up to the highest point. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And Babylon that he oversaw had advances in astronomy, in math and engineering, in irrigation, agriculture, all these things he led, he saw, he saw it grow. He had built this amazing thing. And Honestly, by everyone's standards and all the outside writings beyond the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar was an impressive guy. He was an amazing military strategist. He was great at international diplomacy. He uh, was very, he was a leader among men. He was somebody who built and create all sorts of things. He was very wise and he was very religious. He feared the gods and even the God of Israel. He had all of these things. In other words, if anyone was ever to have the right to say, I built this, I built this, and now I'm going to enjoy it. I built this for my joy and my pleasure. If anyone had the right to say that, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if we were to put ourselves in the same place as Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not sure that we would outright say, stand up in front and say, I built this for my own glory and my own majesty. And yet, there's a way to try to understand if maybe that's how we think. And it has to do with how we think about our record. Are the good things in life, are the good things in life something that you feel at all a little bit owed? Like you deserve the good things in life. Do you ever look at other people with frustration like people that you love, your own family or close friends, and say, why can't they get their life together? Or have you dealt with some hardship and just feel like this isn't fair? It's not fair. Other people's lives are easier. That sense of fairness or deserving or being owed, it, it comes from that same sense of I've built this. The things that you've accomplished are yours. And you are owed a good life as a result. Or you earn the money, it's therefore yours, right? We tend to see success as ours. I got into that college. I took this job. I've advanced my career. I've been a good husband. I've raised my kids well. And so all the good things that we have seen in our life, we have this kind of internal battle where we don't even realize it, that we feel like we're owed these things, that we sort of deserve them. But one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is learning in this passage that is an underlying theme throughout the scriptures is God alone is in control. As much as you might have accomplished, the question is this, did you determine who you were born to be? Did you determine when and where you were born? I wonder if your life would look any different if you were born in a different era or as a different person. If you were born 
as an African-American in the early 1800s in South Carolina. Would your life look any different than it does right now? Or if you were born in Jerusalem around 587, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the whole city, would your life look any different if you were enslaved in Babylon? How much do we actually have control of in our life? You know, one of the things that COVID has shown us, this pandemic, this global pandemic, is we aren't in control. All the powers of all the nations, all the wisdom of all the nations, all the economic force of all the nations, they have to fall beneath a virus. We're not in as much control as we think we are. My worry is a couple of years from now, we'll forget that. We'll forget how little control we actually have. Pride, pride is an overinflated view of ourself. It's a way of thinking about our own lives, the world around us, the political situation in our country as it depends on me. I built this, I deserve this. It depends on me, it depends on us. What do you do with your record? Are you humble and acknowledging God's in control or living out of a pride of I'm owed these things? And last question is this to kind of understand pride versus humility is what do you do with your wealth? What do you do with your wealth? And when I say wealth, I'm going to include a bunch of things in there. I mean, if you have any position at work, any influence with friends, if you've accomplished anything, if you have relationships that have gained you access into things, and yes, your money, your actual dollar wealth, what do you do with these things? What do you do with your wealth? You know, Nebuchadnezzar was faced with that in his crisis point, wasn't he? Daniel says, repent, and his repentance claim in verse 27 is break off of your sins by practicing righteousness Break off of your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That word righteousness, I said earlier, means justice. Uh, one Bible commentator said that that phrase, that word righteousness or justice in the Old Testament came very early on in the understanding of the Jewish mind to mean charity, generosity with the poor, what you do with your wealth. That true justice and righteousness in the Old Testament was caring for the most vulnerable. It was the poor and the widow and the foreigner, the sojourner. It was caring for those who were weak. It was extending yourself, using all of your capital, all of your influence, all of your power in a community to care for the weakest in your community. But Nebuchadnezzar says instead, I have built this, all of this for me. Why can't I enjoy it? I'm the one who did it. In a sense, what he's saying in that word glory and majesty is, I've built all this, all that I've done, and this proves that I matter, that this is who I am. I'm this great king. Glory is where we find our meaning and our identity, our self-worth. And very often, especially in the modern West, we are success-driven people, achievement-oriented people, 
And we find our glory, our meaning, our identity, our self-worth, and what we've done. And because we're the sort of people that often think, well, we're a merit-based culture, and I've done these things, and I deserve these things. We're not much different than Nebuchadnezzar, who said, it's my success. Why shouldn't I be able to enjoy it? Pride causes us to see, to see what, what we have as our own doing. What we have, all that we have as something that we have built. And so we struggle to be radically generous with all we have. You know, what uh, Daniel was suggesting to Nebuchadnezzar in the repentance call was to be open-handed with all that he had and radically, actively generous with all he had. You know, many Christian churches, they talk about a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income given back to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, that was what they were called to do, to give 10% of their crops that came in that year, of the animals that were birthed if they had sheep or cattle, to give 10% of their wealth that came in that year back to God and for the caring of the poor and the needy. And the question is, is that easy for you to do? Are you the sort of person that's like, yeah, I, I gave $1,000 away in charity last year. I even gave 10000 But you hear a 10% of your income annually given away for the work of God and the caring of the poor. And what do you think? For some of you, because you come from a, the type of churches that have emphasized that 10%, it's pretty easy for you. you could do, you've done 10% for years. But could you easily go to 12 or 15% or 20? It's hard. It's hard because at some point we feel like, well, I checked the box. You know, if you came from certain Christian circles, I've checked the box. I give away 10%. But if you're doing well financially, is that yours or is it God's? It's hard, right? It's hard to feel that and say, okay, what do I do with that? I think it is to say, am I being open-handed open -handed with all I have? My position, my resources, my influence, my family, my house, my income. Am I being open-handed with it, not holding it tightly as mine, and willingly, radically, actively generous with it, with my time, with my abilities, my connections, and my wealth? The difference between pride versus humility is often revealed by a person's generosity. Their generosity of spirit, their generosity with their power and position and connections, and yeah, their generosity with their money. Nebuchadnezzar does not heed the repentance call of Daniel, but he falls. In verse 33, we read, after Nebuchadnezzar had declared, this is what I have built by my mighty power, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like a bird's claws. We don't know how long he was in this animal-like state. 
it says seven seasons, but or you know, we, we don't know whether that's seven months or seven years or seven agricultural seasons. But for some perfect time in God's eyes, Nebuchadnezzar went from being a king to being an animal-like creature living in the wilderness. He was driven from men. He became insane, much like uh, Legion, the demon-possessed man in the Gospels, that Jesus comes and finds naked and living amongst the tombs and far away from all the people. Nebuchadnezzar went to a place of mental insanity and was unable to live life or be in control of his own self and certainly not able to enjoy the gifts that he had built up. You know, one of the things about pride is it actually dehumanizes us. It's why being driven into this position where he looked like an animal and lived among them was actually a good physical descriptor of the state of his heart beforehand. An animal is only able to have circumstantial happiness. Like an animal maybe looks satisfied when it's sleeping or eating, but that's only because it's sleeping or eating. An animal can't get to a point where in the midst of suffering, it still has joy. When you're filled with pride, you're only happy when your circumstances are going well. And we end up living in that animal-like way of only for our survival, which for many of us is defined by my success, my being in the inner circle, my getting what I want. That pride makes us animalistic with others. We see them as competitors for the same food. And in pride, we're dehumanized because we have little ability to have empathy. An animal doesn't have empathy for other creatures in the way that a human can. To extend generosity, justice, and mercy beyond itself, a mother will push away the runt of the litter to protect the others. It's very natural. Survival of the fittest. Only concerned about themselves That pride causes us to have very little empathy, as Nebuchadnezzar had for the oppressed, very little. So for some length of time, Nebuchadnezzar is in this state until the Lord calls him back. And ultimately, it's because God is merciful. He, his justice is radically generous, and Nebuchadnezzar is restored. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He worships God. He declares once he's restored to his uh, sanity and to his place as king, he declares the most high who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This psalm comes from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the sort of declaration that earlier he would have only said about himself, all my dominion, no one can say no to me. And now he says it about God. And so he's restored to his full place as king to enjoy the fullness of his kingdom. And in this, he has come to know God, that God has been showing him love and mercy. God used Nebuchadnezzar even in bringing judgment on Israel, according to Jeremiah and the other books of the Bible. And in this moment, he had used Nebuchadnezzar's suffering, his fall, in order to show him his love and mercy. 
Now, I don't mean for us to go to extremes on just thinking like suffering, God has some message for us, but to recognize in the midst of brokenness, weakness, and even failure that God is still present. He is still acting to demonstrate his love and his mercy for us. Nebuchadnezzar finally knew what he needed to know, which is the Most High, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And this calls us to respond as people who live in exile with faithfulness. Yes, the culture around us is an unbelieving culture. You're going to find people that disagree with what you believe. You're going to have political enemies, if you call them enemies, people who disagree with you. But I think Nebuchadnezzar's story, the, the call of Daniel 4 and of the Bible, is to be people of humility, recognizing we are not in control. Humility and generosity, able to be generous because we don't need to control everything. And we're able to give the glory to whom it's due. And finally, trust. Praise as Nebuchadnezzar does, turning everything over to the God who is in control, to see